Why don't you please stand with me for the reading of God's word? Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 23. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, and frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled that was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there, and being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. This is the word of the Lord. This morning, I'm just feeling overwhelmed with gratitude for how good Jesus is. Isn't Jesus awesome? 
I'm also feeling really grateful to gather with the people of God. I just love this church. I love you guys. Don't you love each other? Everybody turn to your neighbor and say, I'm glad you're here today. Hey, I'd like to pray one more time. If you would please bow your heads with me. Let's ask the Holy Spirit to help us as we study God's word today. Father, in this moment, we do worship you as the one good God, creator of the universe, our Savior. We thank you for sending Jesus to save us. We thank you for bringing us here. Thank you for the forgiveness of sins through Jesus Christ. Thank you for the gift of church family. Lord, we know that not only are we engaged right now in the wonderful calling to worship you, but we're also engaged in spiritual warfare because your word has the power to save and to transform lives and to resurrect the dead. And because the spiritual forces of evil don't like the word of God, as we just read about in this text, the spiritual forces of evil will do everything to stop the message of salvation from getting out. But we know that you are stronger than every evil force in the world. So right now, we ask for the help of your Holy Spirit. Would you help me to humbly and accurately and faithfully teach your word in the way that you intend with the power of your Holy Spirit? And would you help all of us to hear your word, to understand your word, to trust your word, to remember your word, to obey your word? I pray that the Holy Spirit would lighten us a fire of holy love for Jesus Christ and of holy surrender to his purposes today. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, Amen. Hey, I want you to notice how shocking the first two verses of this chapter are. Even scandalous. Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 and 2 are shocking and scandalous. Read it with me again. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, that's what we just got done celebrating at Christmas time. After he was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When you understand those verses, they're shocking and they're scandalous. First, let's ask the question, who are these wise men from the east? Or often you'll hear them called magi. Everybody say magi. That's the Greek word here. These magi were probably from Persia or southern Arabia, and they were almost certainly astrologers. You know what an astrologer is? It's not like an astronomer. An astronomer lives in a university and studies the stars and teaches about that. An astrologer is like somewhere between a scientist and a sorcerer. They write horoscopes, right? These are people that are looking at the sky for secret messages. So when we hear wise men from the east, we need to understand what we're talking about is pagan wise men, pagan spiritual leaders who were wise in the way of interpreting the signs and symbols written in the heavens and the movements of the stars. And you can find it all over YouTube, right? The blood moons, this and the alignment of the planets and what they're telling you about history. And lots of people today will read their daily horoscope and try and figure out what the future is going to hold. That was their business. And what's interesting about that is that the Old Testament scriptures forbid that kind of a thing. So 
If we're going to be biblical, you're not supposed to get your ideas about your life from the horoscope. You're supposed to get it from God's word. Amen. But these guys didn't know that. They lived in a part of the world where they had not been properly instructed. They were astrologers. They were looking at the skies. And yet, somehow, in the mystery of God's grace, one day they looked up in the skies and they saw something that caught their attention in a new way. We don't know what it was. Lots of scholars have studied the star charts and come up with all sorts of theories about what they might have seen. We don't know for sure. But they saw something that caught their attention and didn't just catch their attention. It meant something to them that they could figure out precisely enough to say the king of the Jews has been born. We need to go to Jerusalem. Not only did they get a message that the king of the Jews has been born, they thought that this particular baby king was important enough. It was worth going on a really long journey. Going on a long journey is inconvenient now, but at that time it's always taking your life in your own hands. This is dangerous. This is expensive. But they're going on a long journey to go to Jerusalem to try and find this king. What did they see? How did they know? We can only speculate. It's possible that through the dispersion of the Jews and their exile, that the words of prophets like Isaiah had spread out and they had heard of a savior, the king of the Jews, who was going to come and his coming would mean hope not only for the Jewish people, but for all nations, maybe. But they saw something. And here, let me just point out at least two scandalous things about this text. Point one, these magi, these pagan astrologers from the east have come searching for the king, for King Jesus, in a way that shows that they understand something about the identity of the king of the Jews before God's own people understand. That's scandalous, number one. That's offensive for Matthew's readers because most of Matthew's readers are Jewish Christians, but he's pointing out to them here, long before most of our people understood that Jesus was the Savior we've been awaiting, God was already drawing pagans to himself. And now that leads to the second scandalous thing about this text. How did they know? How did they know? Well, we don't know the details because we don't know what they saw, but here's one thing that we do know. These people were pagans. Almost certainly they were coming from a religious system where they were worshiping false gods and they were astrologers looking at the stars, looking for signs and symbols. And yet God revealed himself to them in a way that they could understand. He met them where they were. He says, don't worship false gods. Don't look at the stars. And yet they're looking at the stars. And so God puts a sign in the heavens that they can understand in their own little cultural way. He met them where they were in his mercy. That would have offended faithful Jews. You're not supposed to look at the stars for signs. And by the way, that's true. The moral of today's story is not go look at your horoscope. I hope I've made that clear. Live by God's word. But the point is, they didn't know any better and God still loved them. Isn't God's mercy wonderful? God revealed himself to them. He's shown his light into their darkness. And that's what today is all about. As Chauncey mentioned a second ago, today is Epiphany Sunday. Everybody say Epiphany. January 6th is Epiphany, but the Sunday between January 3rd and 8th, I think it is, is Epiphany Sunday. And Epiphany is a special holy day in the Christian calendar, and it's the beginning of a holy season in the Christian calendar. The word Epiphany comes from a Greek word meaning reveal. And this Festival of 
Epiphany today that, that we're celebrating is really the high point that the whole Advent season and the whole Christmas season is leading up to. At Christmas, we remembered God invaded his creation in a new way to save us. The son of God, Jesus Christ, humbled himself and was born among us, walked among us so that he could show us the way of God and die on the cross for our sins and rise again. But now what we're celebrating is that the God of heaven loved us enough not only to come to save us, but to go to the ends of the earth to reveal the identity of Jesus. And in the Feast of Epiphany, we're celebrating the first time that God revealed Jesus, the Savior, to the Gentiles. Now, that word Gentiles is an important word in your Bible. Everybody say Gentiles. The Bible tends to divide the human race mostly into two groups, the Jews or the children of Israel. That's one group. And the Gentiles just means everybody else. Because God chose the people of Israel. He chose Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and then changed Jacob's name to Israel. And God planned to save the whole world through his chosen people. So Jesus is a Jew and Jesus is the Jewish savior. And yet, as we said a moment ago, He's the Jewish savior who came not only to save the Jews, but also to save the whole world. And that means all of us, because I may be wrong. There may be one or two people in this room who are descended from ethnic Israel, who are ethnically Jewish. But most of us are not. Most of us would trace our ancestry back to somewhere, northern Europe or Africa or the indigenous peoples of North America or somewhere. But not Israel, which means this is about our salvation. This is about the fact that God loved us enough to shine light and the pagan peoples on the edge of the map like us. And this holiday of Epiphany has an important role in the church calendar, because every year when it comes around, it reminds us that God's vision to bring hope and healing to the world truly is for the whole world. It's global now. For the rest of our time today, I just want to simply emphasize three points that are in this text. And these three simple truths I want to emphasize in the text are truths that, like I said, they're simple, but they're deep. They have deep implications for life and they are profoundly relevant for the world today. So I hope that the Holy Spirit's going to help us to take each of these to heart. The first one I've already started talking about is this. You can jot them down in your notes if you want to keep track. Point one from this text, I've already begun to speak about. God is shining the light of hope, healing, joy and salvation into every ethnic group and every dark place on the earth. That's what's happening in this text and that's what's happening in the world today. God is shining the light of hope, healing, joy and salvation into every ethnic group. And into every dark place on the earth. Now, I've already begun to show you that from verses 1 and 2. But look look down at verses 10 and 11. Look what happens when these magi from the east finally find Jesus. It says, when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. You might underline those two words, great joy. Everybody say joy. When they saw the star after their long journey, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. So at the end of their journey, they find Jesus. And when they find Jesus, they find joy. 
Now, we don't really know what these men thought when they saw the baby. Did they know he was going to die on the cross for their sins and come back to life? Maybe if they'd studied the prophet Isaiah, but probably not. They had longings of their own. They had their own reasons for coming. It makes me begin to wonder what were their yearnings in their heart that made them want to take this journey? And what were the yearnings of their heart that caused them, when they finally saw the star and then saw the baby, to rejoice with great joy? The question gets me thinking, and I'm glad the text doesn't answer the question. It leaves it kind of mysterious, because for all of us Gentiles scattered among the nations with all of our cultural difference and ethnic difference, the text effectively says to us, Jesus is the end result of all the deepest yearnings of every human culture and every human heart. Jesus is what we're waiting for. Jesus is what we're looking for. If you're here today and you feel guilty or you feel ashamed because of your sin and you long for forgiveness and cleansing, you can find it in Jesus. If you're here today, you're searching for hope and it feels like your life is pointless. You want hope and you want purpose. You can find it in Jesus. If you're here today and you're looking for belonging, if you're looking for a community, a place to be loved and to find love and to give love, you can find it in Jesus. If you're here today and you're overwhelmed by fears and you're looking for a power that can deliver you from all the evil and darkness and chaos in the world, you can find it in Jesus. And we can go on and on. What I'm saying is whatever the deepest and truest yearnings of the heart of human beings made in the image of God are, they're all planted there by God to point us to one person, and it's Jesus. When they find him, they're filled with joy, and then text says they worship him, they honor him, they give him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. There's a lot that can be said about the significance of these gifts, but I just want to make the simple point now. This is a real historical event But the church has also seen it a rich symbolic significance. What's happening here is, first of all, that God is revealing himself. He's shining his light out into distant ethnic groups and into dark corners of the earth to draw people to himself. And as they're coming to God, they're finding joy. They're finding salvation and they're bringing their own unique cultural treasures to Jesus to be consecrated to him, which is to say every people group, every cultural group. On the earth, because it's created by God and because human beings are made in the image of God, every ethnic group, every cultural group uniquely reflects the beauty of God. But also it's true that all of our cultural and ethnic groups are tainted by sin. Anybody here want to admit that you're a sinner? And all of our cultural groups and ethnic groups are tainted by sin. So when we come to Jesus, we find all of our idols and all of our sin and all of our self-destructive tendencies brought down. They're forced to bow down before Jesus, but we also find the truest and deepest manifestations of ourselves fulfilled in Christ. So that every ethnic and cultural group, as they come to know Jesus, as we come to know Jesus, begin to bring everything that we are and our distinctiveness to God in ways that causes each of us to reflect the glory of God in unique and distinctive ways. Which is to say, the global, universal, ethnic diversity of the church shows us the goodness of Jesus much better than if we have a very narrow vision of the church. Now, this truth that God is shining the light of hope and healing and joy and salvation to every ethnic group and every dark place of the earth 
is what's happening in the text. But I also want us to sit for a moment in the fact that this is what's happening in the world today. Every ethnic group, every dark corner of the planet. Think about that for a second. First of all, as we've already said, that's why you and I can have hope. Because God is shining his light even into our darkness. And if he can save us, he can save anybody. Amen. Perhaps somebody here would like to testify about this, but I would venture to say that none of us got here today because ever since the moment we born, we've been so good and so religious and so spiritual. The reason that all of us are here today is because despite the fact that we've all sinned and we've all rebelled against God and we've all done foolish things, God shined the light of his love into our darkness in a way that worked for us. He met us where we were in the midst of our unique, distinctive brokenness. And he sent somebody to tell us the truth. And that's how we got here today. Anybody want to testify? That's your story. We can have hope because the story of Epiphany is our story. God revealed himself to us. But I also want us to now look outside the walls of this room and think the reason why there is hope for every ethnic group and for every hurting person in every difficult situation in our community in South Oklahoma City is because the God of Matthew 2 is the God of 2021 in South Oklahoma City. This is still the God who meets people where they are. He's still the God who shines light into dark places. He's still the God who gives hope to discourage and despairing hearts. Still the God who forgives sin, who reconciles sinners to himself and one another. Still the God who's able to bring out a beautiful reflection of his glory in every ethnic and cultural group. He's still that God. But bigger than that, I want us to zoom out and think bigger, think globally today, because God is still the God who loves every nation and every ethnic group all over the face of planet Earth. I want you to think with me for a second about how glorious it is to be one little bitty baby small church within the context of God's really big global church. It's wonderful that we're worshiping Jesus today. And isn't it wonderful to know that we are not the only ones? I want you to think about this reality. The last 120 years, if we look at Europe and North America, have been... Years of what we might call spiritual decline, largely, statistically, in Western culture. I'll say more about that in a second. But lots of people who were Christians have walked away from Christianity in Western culture. So if you live in a place like Europe or America, it's easy to feel like that's the tendency of the world for the last 100 or 120 years. But that feeling is entirely misleading Because the reality is that while we're struggling and praying and facing a tremendous amount of spiritual warfare in Western culture, the gospel has been spreading with unprecedented speed and explosive power throughout the global South and East. So that over the last 120 years, I'm not exaggerating, friends, I need you to hear this. Over the last 120 years, literally hundreds of millions of people in South America, Africa and Asia have come to know Jesus. The numbers are so stunning. It goes something like this. In the year 1900, because of various historical accidents, about 80% of Christians lived in Europe and North America. Today, less than 40% do so. 
the country and or excuse me, the continent in the world that has the most Christians is Africa. Number two is South America. Isn't that glorious news? We are not the center. How did that happen? Well, I don't have time in this one sermon to tell the whole story, but I'll just tell part of the story. If you read the stories of how the gospel has spread like wildfire throughout the global south and east in our time, um, here's some things that you start to notice. One, it's not a story primarily of heroic Western Christians going and sacrificing themselves. There have been some missionaries who did that, and I want to honor their sacrifice. But the story in the 20th century is primarily God raising up indigenous leaders from those people groups who went and led lots of people to Christ. God raising up indigenous churches. And part of the reason why the story does not get told in the West, the West has started to notice those numbers, those statistics that I'm mentioning. But the stories of how it's happened hasn't been written very much because if you ask the people in South America or Africa or China how that happened, many of them are alive in the world today. Many of them are writing books. But if you ask them, they tell you stories that don't fit into Western sociology. They sound a lot like the book of Acts. They tell you stories about people having dreams and visions of Jesus. They tell you stories about sick people being healed in the name of Jesus. They tell you stories about demons being cast out in the name of Jesus. They tell you stories of lots of miracles. Let me just talk about, to be specific for a moment, let's just talk about the continent of Africa. Here's the historical reality. The gospel spread into North Africa very early. I mean, even in the New Testament, we have African Christians. And uh, a very high percentage of the church fathers, the great theologians of the early centuries of the church, were from places like Egypt and North Africa. Uh, but the gospel did not spread until sub-Saharan Africa until much later. Now, throughout the early modern period, this, this sounds like a little history lesson. I know some of you all just fell asleep already. Nudge your neighbor, tell him, stay awake. Because if you listen to me, if you're, feeling, if you're feeling bad about, I just called you out for falling asleep. Just know that I can't actually see your face because of the glare in my glasses. I just felt like I was probably putting you to sleep. So I didn't call out anybody. But I want you to stay with me because if you'll listen for a second, the takeaway is worth it. Here's what I want you to hear. In sub-Saharan Africa, throughout the early modern period, African people were oppressed, as you know, by Europeans. So there was European colonization. There was the slave trade. Lots of missionaries came from European countries to share the gospel. But as you can imagine, if the people that are coming to share the gospel look like the people that are oppressing you, you're not going to be very interested in what they have to say. Sometimes those missionaries were in bed politically with the colonizers. Sometimes they were actively working against the oppressive, uh, oppressive force of colonization. But even so, they made few inroads and they often had huge cultural blind spots where they had a hard time separating Christianity from European culture. But something amazing started to happen because at, during the mid 20th centuries, as Africa underwent a process of political liberation so that by 1960, most of Africa has now been liberated from European colonialism. Simultaneous to that, millions of Africans started accepting Christianity for their own reasons and on their own terms. Understand this. It was happening while political liberation was happening at the same time, and they were related phenomenon. Many Africans who had rejected the institutional European churches now accepted Jesus for their own reasons and started their own churches, such that by 1965, which was the year at which almost all of the European colonizers had been had lost power in Africa. The, the explosive growth had been 
like this. At 1900, there was about 8.7 million Christians in Africa. By 1965, it was 60 million. Did you hear that? From 8.7 million to 60 million over the course of a few decades. But it didn't stop there. Because now that all the colonizers were gone, and now that there were 60 million Christians, they started sharing the gospel all over the place. And if you'll listen to their stories, which are just now being written in English, uh, Africans are telling their own stories. And they're telling stories about how Christianity fulfilled and sustained traditional African cultures, but also invested them with new life and new power. And Africans began planting churches and their stories are filled with miracles, filled with stories of people being healed, filled with stories of demons being cast out. And the explosive growth was such that by the year 1985, listen to this number. By the way, nothing that I'm telling you is coming from Western authors. I'm telling you stuff that's written by African authors like Lamin Sana and uh, Emmanuel Katangale and many others. By 1985, Christians, uh, Africans were embracing Christianity at a rate of about 16,500 per day. Wouldn't that be fun if we had revival like that in America? Which translates to over 6 million per year. During that same time period, to put this in perspective, about 4,300 people in Europe and North America were leaving the church every day. So that even as the post-Christian phenomena was happening in the West, global Christianity was exploding. Now, why? Why were they converting? I just mentioned when they answer that question, they're going to African Christians will tell you stories about miracles. But there's there's also more that could be said. Let me read to you. Doesn't matter what I'm just an American white guy. Doesn't matter what I think about why they converted. So let me read to you one scholar. Laman Santa. I mentioned him a minute ago. Grew up um, in Africa, but then came to the United States and for many years taught at Yale, became the leading scholar in the English language of religion in Africa. I'm going to read you a quote. He says this. The old religions, meaning traditional African religions, provided the rules, rewarding good conduct and punishing wrong. But they had only a limited ethical range. The family, the clan, the village and the tribe. Small scale societies insulated people from historical pressures and thus removed the need for the adjustment in people's worldview. So here's an African who was himself a convert to Christianity saying the African tribal religions and tribal cultures were beautiful. They were good. They taught us our crucial ethical and spiritual principles, but their power was limited. They didn't give us the resource that we needed to form a deeper sense of human solidarity. And then listen to what he wrote about how Africans began embracing the gospel. He says, Christianity answered this historical challenge by a reorientation of the worldview so that the old moral framework was reconfigured without being overthrown. He's going to explain what that means. It was not that the old spells turning benign from overuse had dulled the appetite. But that under challenge, their spent potency sparked a clamor for a valiant God. People sensed in their hearts that Jesus did not mock their respect for the sacred or their clamor for an invincible savior. And so they beat their sacred drums for Jesus until the stars skipped and danced in the skies. After that dance, the stars weren't little anymore. Christianity helped Africans to become renewed Africans, not remade Europeans. Well, what he's saying is this. We didn't trade our Africanness for Christianity. What happened was that Jesus made us true Africans in a deeper and more powerful way than ever before. 
All of our spiritual yearnings found fulfillment in Jesus. All of our moral impulses found fulfillment in Jesus. He goes on to write how after embracing Christianity, so many African societies began organizing in ways that was creating schools and hospitals and clinics and orphanages and peacemaking initiatives that helped challenge the harm done by colonialism. Similarly, Emmanuel Katongale writes that Christianity is another African theologian. He's from Uganda, writes that Christianity is the only force that provides the solidarity and the spiritual empowerment that is needed for Africa to have a truly liberating politics and that the most dangerous and destructive political force in Africa today is Western secularism. Now, none of this fits the narrative that you get in America of skeptical secular people criticizing missions. If you tuned out, tune back in with me. Who has heard secular skeptical people criticizing Christian missions? Raise your hand if you have. Okay, lots of hands are going up. Here's how the critique goes. The critique says it is arrogant to think that your religion is the only way. Shouldn't you recognize that if other people believe in your Jesus, then you'll be destroying their culture. And if you destroy their culture, that's violent and oppressive. So therefore, Christian missions is violent and oppressive and imperialist. Now, that's the critique. And I'm taking time to bore you with a little academic part of this sermon Because today what we're talking about is God's love for all nations. But if you're going to get serious about sharing God's love with all peoples in the world today, you're going to face that critique. What's the answer? Is it true that Jesus is, if you ask people to believe in Jesus, you're asking them to forsake their culture? And you're being oppressive? Well, let me point out a few things about that critique. Here's the first thing I want you to notice. In order to accept that critique, you have to reject... The interpretation that people from the global south give of their own conversions. Did you hear that? If you're going to accept the Western secular critique of missions, that means Western secular people understand why Africans convert to Christianity and Africans don't. The critique itself is silencing the voices of South Americans and Chinese and African people who have come to know Christ and denying their agency, which is itself an imperialist gesture. It is itself impressive. Instead of listening to them, maybe what we should do is listen to people like Lamin Santa. Listen to Christians who are saying, Jesus didn't destroy our culture. Sure, European politics was violent towards us, but Jesus is not European politics. Amen? Jesus is Jesus. Jesus grew up in Nazareth. Jesus was a refugee in Egypt. That's what we just read about in this story. Jesus was brown. Jesus never spoke English or French or Spanish. Got it? Jesus sent the gospel all the way to pagan peoples like my ancestors who were some kilt-wearing druids in Scotland, right? Jesus is a Near Eastern man who's also the king of all kings and the Lord of all lords. And what the people of the global south and east are saying is Jesus is the savior who came as the subversive fulfillment of our culture, liberating us from our idolatry and liberating us to be what God created us to be. Now, that's the good news of the gospel. And really, probably out of time for the sermon, but I have two more points. So I'm just going to have to use discretion and speed right now. (laughs) Let me say these other two points real quick, because we need them to hear the message of Matthew 2. I'm going to skip most of my notes. God delivered you from most of my notes by causing me to leave the notes in the car, which is why I'm looking at this phone. But it's too hard to read that. 
Second point, which you can write down in your notes. As the kingdom of light presses forward, the kingdom of darkness presses back. As we're talking about God bringing hope and healing to all nations, to every ethnic group, to every culture, you need to understand when God is sending out his love to heal the world, the kingdom of light is advancing. The kingdom of darkness presses back. Think about how that shows up in Matthew 2. I'm not going to take time to read it right now just because I've already gone too long. But what happens in this story in Matthew chapter 2 is that we get a toxic mix of oppressive political power and oppressive religious power that combine to destroy human life in the effort to stop the spread of the gospel. What do I mean? What I mean is when Herod hears that they have come to find the king of the Jews, it says he is troubled. Why is he troubled? Because Herod's title was king of the Jews. So if they've come to worship the king of the Jews, his power is threatened. And it says all Jerusalem is troubled with him because they know that Herod is a insecure, violent, oppressive political leader. So when he feels threatened, he starts killing people. So Herod feels that his power is threatened. Notice what he's doing is not thinking, oh, there's probably going to be another silly fake messianic movement. He's afraid that it really is the Messiah. Do you get that? Herod, the so-called king of the Jews in Jerusalem, Herod who oversaw the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem, he's afraid it's really the Messiah. So he says to the chief priests and the scribes, tell me in the book, where is the Messiah going to be born? Because if it's the real Messiah, Herod wants to kill him before the Messiah can come take his throne. That's pretty dark, isn't it? Do you know what else is dark? The wise men from the east, they don't have enough understanding of the local situation to understand all that. But the chief priests and the scribes, they know exactly what Herod's thinking. And when religious leaders care more about keeping political favor than they do about being faithful to God, dark stuff starts happening. Did you hear that, everybody? Religious nationalism is not a new problem in world history. And when we love our politics more than we love God, ugly, destructive stuff can start happening. So the chief priests and the scribes, they don't want to lose favor with Herod. They know Herod's going to try and stop this thing. And yet they go tell him, look, it says in Micah, he's born in Bethlehem. So then Herod sends soldiers. The soldiers are just following their orders. They're just obeying the job. So there's all these people motivated by petty selfishness. And yet behind it, we can discern the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places, the powers of darkness that are always trying to destroy human life and trying to stop the gospel. Now, that's true in the text. It's also true in the world today. Friends, if anybody in this room wants to try the experiment, let me just tell you. If you left here today and you said, Jesus, from now on, my whole life is about knowing you and making you known. Everything else is just details. So as long as I'm in Oklahoma City, I'm going to do it here. But if you send me elsewhere, I'm ready to go wherever you want me. And wherever you send me, my one ambition in life is to know Jesus Christ and to do everything I can to help others know Jesus Christ through my words and through my actions, through sharing the gospel, through making disciples, through doing good works of love and justice. I just want to make Jesus known. If you did that, you would quickly begin to experience that spiritual warfare is real today, too. Just try the experiment. Anybody want to testify to that? Jared, have you found it's true? 
Jared's whole life is about, I want to know Jesus and I want to make Jesus known. And he's always going to dark places with the gospel. And so he's telling you from experience it's true. I'm telling you from experience it's true. Many people here could tell you it's true. Not only that, but if we want to talk about the global stage, I just told you a second ago about the massive expansion of Christianity in the 20th century. But now let me talk to you about the corresponding cost. So I don't get the numbers right. Let me read you one quote. This is from Dr. Todd M. Johnson, who's professor of global Christianity and mission at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. He says this, we estimate that more than 70 million Christians have been martyred over the last two millennia. Let that number sink in. In the last 2000 years, since Jesus walked on the face of the earth, we estimate that at least 70 million Christians have died for their faith. Now, that's remarkable, but listen to what comes next. More than half of which died in the 20th century. More than half of them died in the 20th century, specifically under fascist and communist regimes. Noteworthy, fascist and communist regimes are not the pagan regimes of the indigenous populations. Those are regimes that are invented by post-Christian Western secularism and then exported to other parts of the world. The quote continues, we also estimate that one million Christians were killed between 2001 and 2010 and about 900,000 were killed from 2011 to 2020. What I'm trying to say is the phenomenon that we see in Matthew 2, that God is revealing himself to every ethnic group and he's shining light into every dark place of the earth and that when the light advances, the kingdom of darkness pushes back. That is not only is it still happening today, but it's happening today at a faster and more dramatic rate than it's ever happened in the 2000 year history of Christianity. That's what we're saying. Now, this leads to the third and final point, And this one is good. As you look in the text, third thing you notice is that throughout this text, God is constantly overcoming the power of evil and sustaining his mission to bring hope and healing to the world. Throughout the text, the kingdom of darkness is pushing back, but God wins. So, deceptive politics, Herod's trying to manipulate the wise men, God sends them a dream. They don't go back to Herod. Joseph is in danger, God sends an angel to warn Joseph. Joseph goes to Egypt, now they're in Egypt, God sends Joseph another message and he comes back home. Every step of the way, God is intervening, and the reality that I want you to hear today is a second ago, I said, if you do the experiment of devoting your life to Jesus and his mission, you will come to experience the reality of spiritual warfare. But here's the flip side. You will come to experience the power and the redeeming love of God like you've never imagined. And what you'll find is that the power of God is always stronger than the power of darkness. Now, as we get ready to take the Lord's Supper here today, I got to confess that I'm really praying hard. This is not like a sin confession. This is like a, I want you to hear the urgency of my heart. I'm really praying hard for the Holy Spirit to do something special right now. What I'm praying is that the Holy Spirit will kindle for the first time or rekindle a holy ambition in your heart. I want you to think about those two words. Holy ambition. Everybody say holy ambition. 
An ambition is something that you want so bad that it drives you. So there's other things that you might do, but you're not going to do those because you want this thing really bad. So if you have an ambition to win anything in the Olympics, to win a marathon in the Olympics, there's a whole lot of other stuff you might want to do, like stay up late and party, but you're not going to do it because you need your sleep so you can recover for tomorrow's workout. Or eat pizza, but you're not going to do it because then you won't be able to do tomorrow's workout. There's so many things. You've got to be dedicated. You've got to be disciplined. You've got to devote your life to it. The guys that have won the Olympic marathon for the last decades live in training camps. All they do is run, eat, and sleep. They've got an ambition. No, what I'm talking about is a holy ambition. If, if you're here today, I want you to know the problem that nobody in this room is facing is that we're too ambitious. Some of us aren't ambitious enough, and some of us are super ambitious, but for the wrong stuff. But a holy ambition means God has sparked something in me that is not from man, it's from God. And it's a hunger, it's a thirst that's driving me that I want it so bad that there's lots of other stuff in life. I don't just mean sins. I mean stuff that's fine, stuff that's good, but that stuff that would hinder this one thing that I want. And so I don't even give it a second thought because I want this thing. That's a holy ambition. And the holy ambition I'm praying that the Holy Spirit would stir in our hearts right now is this, that we would be so gripped by the reality that there really is a spiritual struggle between life and death, hatred and love, Salvation and damnation, destruction and joy, that there that is raging and God is really at work bringing hope and healing to the whole world. And that reality would so grip us that we would say, Jesus, I know I'm going to live with you forever in the new creation, not because I deserve it, but because you've forgiven me by grace. And now, as long as I have breath, as long as I'm on earth, Jesus, the one thing I want to do is know you and join you in that mission. That's the holy ambition I'm praying that God will spark here. Some of you have it. And for others, I'm praying that the Holy Spirit will do a new thing today. But, but here's the thing, friends. 2020, wow, that caught all of us by surprise, didn't it? 2020 was a year of desert wilderness spirituality. It was a year of pruning. It was a, a year where we had to keep our distance. Isolation was forced upon us. And I think God has used this year in many of our lives in a pruning and sanctifying and refining way. I pray that that work will continue. But if we become inwardly focused, that would be a great tragedy. So what I'm praying the Holy Spirit is going to do right now, first Sunday of 2021, Epiphany Sunday, is that the Holy Spirit would take this word of the gospel from Matthew 2 and let it be a match that lights a fire in our hearts. So that as we come to this new year, every one of us will say, Jesus, all my worldly ambitions, I lay them down. All of my love for comfort, all my plans, I lay them down. Jesus, I want desperately to join you in the work of what you're doing to bring hope and healing to dark places in the world. That's my desire. Now, before we go to the Lord's Supper, I just want to ask you in joining me in prayer. And if you would feel more comfortable praying by yourself, you're welcome to do that. But if, if you're willing and would be open to this, I would just ask that you would go join with somebody sitting next to you and spend a minute praying. And what I want to ask you to do is, would you join your prayers with my prayers? And would you ask the Holy Spirit to do a work in this room right now? A work of 
freeing our hearts and refocusing us that will spread out from this room to bring hope to dark places throughout South Oklahoma City and to the ends of the earth. Can we do that right now? Let's take a second to gather up right where you are and pray. And after a moment, I'm going to say a closing prayer for us. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you have heard our prayers. Lord, I thank you that you sent the gospel of Jesus to shine light into my dark heart so I could be forgiven. Thank you for your grace that brought us here. And I do pray that even now as we come to the Lord's Supper, your Holy Spirit would be continuing a work that you have begun in us. First of all, there's probably people in this room, Lord, who came here spiritually seeking today that need to just take that first step of trusting in Jesus. And if there's anybody here right now who doesn't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, I just pray that your Holy Spirit would shine light into every heart, that every person here would trust in Jesus and receive your free gift of forgiveness of sins and relationship with God by grace. And Lord, I pray for all of us in the room who made that decision to trust Jesus at some point in the past, that this would be a day of renewal and of revival. Lord, forgive us for every time we become self-focused. Forgive us, Lord, of when we become complacent. Thank you that so many people made such great sacrifices so that the gospel could get to us. And Lord, I pray that there would be kindled in our hearts a holy zeal, a holy passion, and indeed a holy ambition. Lord, that would translate out into people in this room sharing the gospel with friends and family members and co-workers People in this room jumping on neighborhood ministry teams and schools ministry teams and college ministry teams and people in this room, some of them embracing a call from you to uproot their lives and go to some distant part of the earth where you're doing something awesome and you're calling them to join. And I pray that the ripple effects of that would be that many thousands of people would come to have the encounter with Jesus that the wise men had in this story where they would rejoice with a great joy, that the deepest longings of their hearts would be satisfied in Jesus. And just like we've seen throughout world history, Lord, that where the gospel takes root, your people would then form communities of solidarity and love and justice that can bring practical help and healing to places that are hurting. Lord, this is a work that no man can do, certainly not us, So we 
commit it to you and say, not to us, O Lord, but to your name be the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.